Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Decoding TV, a podcast about television. I'm David Chen, and it's an exciting day here today at Decoding TV because we're announcing that we're kicking off coverage of a brand new TV show. At least it's new to us. Uh, I'm pleased to announce that Decoding TV will be covering The Crown Season 5 right here at podcast.decodingtv.com. And joining me for that coverage, she is my wife, and she's also an extremely talented podcaster as well as Royals Observer. Joy of Napping, thank you so much for joining me today. It's great to be here. Um, didn't know that I was a Royals observer, but I, I think I do observe, and they are royal, so I think that's accurate. I should say that uh, Joy O'Napping is not her real name. That's just her Twitter handle, but that's what we'll be calling her uh, on this podcast, uh, Joy for short. So anyway, The Crown. Uh, you may have heard of it, and you may be wondering, David Chen... Why are you covering this show? It's a it's a really weird show for David Chen to cover. David Chen's usually covering shows like uh, Westworld and Game of Thrones and House of the Dragon. Well, let me tell you a little bit about The Crown to start with. Okay, um, The Crown is a show created and primarily written by Peter Morgan. And if that name sounds familiar, it's because he's one of the people uh, that's behind films such as The Queen and Frost Nixon, The Damned United, and Rush. These are high quality films. The Crown depicts the reign of Queen Elizabeth II and how she and her family navigate their roles in a monarchy that at times feels more and more at odds with contemporary events and norms. The production of The Crown is estimated to cost over $100 million per season, making it one of the most expensive TV shows ever made, and it looks it. It's also one of the most critically acclaimed shows ever made. The Crown has been nominated for hundreds of awards since its premiere in 2017, including Outstanding Drama Series at the Emmys and Best Television Drama at the Golden Globes. In 2021, The Crown won all seven drama categories at the 73rd Primetime Awards uh, for the Emmys, becoming the first show to ever do so. The Crown is returning to Netflix on November 9th, 2022, for its fifth and penultimate season. Its last season drew attention for its depictions of Princess Diana and her marriage to Charles, an event that even millennials such as myself, uh, remember in their lifetimes. But putting aside the Diana of it all, which did draw a lot of headlines for season four of The Crown, why do you think The Crown is a show worth talking about joy napping I mean, David, you basically led by saying, why would I, David Chen, watch this show? And then proceeded to list reasons why everyone should watch the show. Mm -hmm. um, I think that these are very famous people. And the question is begged, why would you need for people who have been so relentlessly documented to even have a drama um, when documentary might actually be able to do much of the same work? I think what The Crown offers is interiority into people that are famously pretty reserved and, and silent and mysterious. Um, even though it's fictionalized, um, 
I actually am really fascinated by its attempt to say something universal about people who in some ways seem completely unrelatable because they are so wealthy. They literally live in palaces and they believe in heredity as a way to pass down power. Like most of us don't live by primogeniture. Um, but I think the there's two reasons. I've always like sort of been interested in The Crown as a show because I'm interested in the underlying events and the history. But there is no way to get distance from the fact that the events that are going to happen in season five are just like a supernova hitting this institution that has stood for many hundreds of years. And they've been laying the track for that for all four seasons that we've seen so far. It's been a compelling drama in and of itself. You actually, if you don't empathize with people necessarily, you can understand the trade-offs that they're caught between. Um, So to quote Solomon Lane in Mission Impossible Fallout, one of your favorite movies, the end you've always feared is coming, the fallout of all your good intentions. I really think that is where season five is going to be. And I, I mean, we all lived it, or many of us lived it, but it is still chilling to contemplate. And I think it's going to actually be very moving. Beautifully said. Uh, I by will Solomon say, Lane or by me? I mean, everything about it was great, what you just said. I, I love this show. I think it's one of the best shows on TV, possibly one of the greatest shows of all time. Uh, for all the reasons that you said, uh, one of the other reasons I would say is I love how refreshingly episodic it is. I feel like I'm in the hands of really good storytellers whenever I watch an episode of the show. And I know when I get to the end of an episode, I will have been told a good story. Most of the time, like 90% of the time. There's like several episodes in season three that were pretty rough. But uh, other than that, I feel like at the end of every episode, I feel like even if I'm just going in cold, I'm introduced to all new characters, new dynamics. I'm going to be taken through an interesting story. And by the end of it, I'll feel like, oh, that was an episode that had something to say. And this is so actually becoming frustratingly rare in modern television uh, that you have a TV show that knows to tell an entire story within the course of one episode. Beyond that, uh, I think that you're right. A lot of what The Crown is these days is showing what happens when this fairly outdated institution collides with modernity and the people that get caught in its wake uh, end up in very tragic, terrible situations. And it's very powerful to see that. Um, Before we go on to either kind of look back at where we've been in The Crown, and I think we'll eventually in this episode preview season five a little bit. I do want to answer a question that people often ask me, and I'm curious what your answer would be, which is, do I need to have gone back and rewatched all of The Crown in order to prepare myself for season five? And one of the really cool things about this show, as you just mentioned, is it almost has this anthology quality where you could watch not just any given season by itself, but you could potentially even watch individual episodes and have it be a satisfying story. Totally. I think that is becoming less true. Um, I think season four in particular feels like it benefits from watching all of season four. And I think season five, you mean? Season four did, and I think season five will even more so. I see. I see. In terms of the serialization within the within the season, yes. And the reason is the span of time covered in each season. So some of the seasons are twelve to thirteen years. Some are going to be as little as six to seven. And I think as time gets more condensed and things are more overlapped onto each other, um, they're going to be 
more continuous stories where one domino leads more to the other. So, um, you know, sometimes you watch an episode and three years have passed and all of a sudden we're in Wales and there's like a mining disaster. Um, and that feels that kind of like dancing through the raindrops and seeing history from different perspectives, um, I think has been a, a really interesting feature up until this point. But if people are wondering, I would recommend at least watch season four if you can. Yeah, yeah. And in terms of our coverage, I, I do want to point out, we're not quite sure exactly how we're going to cover the show on Decoding TV yet. We've never covered a binge release show on Decoding TV. So in a worst case scenario, the next episode you hear is going to be just a recap of the whole season, basically. And uh, we'll just talk about our thoughts on the whole season and highs and lows and so on and so forth. In a best case scenario, we'll be recapping every single episode uh, on a week-to-week basis. The show's going to be released all at once or close to all at once, so it's really not going to be like a normal decoding TV show. Um, but we're still trying to figure that out. So I do want to fully disclose, like, it might just be one other episode that you hear uh, from us about The Crown. Uh, or it could be a couple, or it could be all of them. We will see. In terms of this episode you're listening to right now, the objective of this preview episode is to talk about season four, overall thoughts, and then also figure out where we left off with every one of the characters slash people in the show. And then look forward to season five and think through what might lie ahead for uh, the show, the storylines that they might investigate and so on. We are going to try not to quote unquote spoil things in real life to the extent that that's possible. Um, we're going to assume that you don't know that much about the show and, and what happens to the characters, but uh, it's possible that we may accidentally divulge something that's happened in real life. So just be ready because it it is real and it's relatively recent too. So um, And pretty give, famous. Yeah, pretty famous stuff. So uh, just l- letting people know like the, the heads up there. Um, and I think that is about it when it comes to uh, what's going on with uh, this podcast. The only other thing I want to say about The Crown before we dive into season four is the show has drawn quite a bit of criticism for uh, basically inventing lots of stuff that happened. Uh, the approach that Peter Morgan has said that he takes and that the the people who write the show take is they use these real life figures, historical figures, as uh, characters in a story that they want to tell. So if they want to tell a story about gluttony or um greed or whatever you know they'll just they'll take these characters and move them around to whatever suits their purpose regardless of what happened in real life this does bother me personally david chen you know like i uh there's been calls for netflix to include a little title card in front of it that's like a lot of these events weren't true or some of this stuff was made up or whatever um, I doubt oh, they're going to do that. I think it's stronger than that. It's uh, this is a work of fiction. Yeah, this is a work of fiction. Yeah, yeah. I doubt they're going to do that because they've resisted calls for the last four seasons to do that. Even Helena but, Bonham Carter, who starred in the show, has said that previously. Yeah, has said that she wants that to happen. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I think they should do it. I think it's it, it does have the veneer of verisimilitude, um, and I think it does a disservice to the historical record. Uh, for them to not acknowledge uh, that it is completely or that vast portions of it are completely fictionalized. Um, I remember watching like when Steve Jobs, that movie that Aaron Sorkin came out, you know, uh, Aaron Sorkin was talking about how one of the people who is featured in the film left the screening of the film and said, 
Um, none of that happened, but it's all true. You know, meaning that while the events of the movie were not depicted uh, accurately, um, it captured an essential truth about the situation. I don't even think the crown rises to that level. Like it doesn't oh. rise to the level of, uh, or, or or very frequently it doesn't, in my opinion. Um, frequently it like invents whole cloth, like total side plots that like dramatically influence people's mindsets in the show. Um, most notably, I think like in season two, when it made uh, Philip responsible for his sister's death, right. If I recall correctly, um, or that Philip so, felt that he was that he carried guilt because his sister was on her way to visit him. I yeah. don't think he like sabotaged the plane. Sure, 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 sure. Um, but anyway, so I, I do want to acknowledge that while there are character people and characters that we recognize from real life, uh, the Crown is primarily a work of fiction, and I will probably come back to this point whenever we talk about the show again. But Joy, I'm open to any thoughts you have about that before we move on. I have really mixed feelings about it. I think that it's a little odd. It's it's cacophonous to say, hey, it's just a work of fiction. And then to put so much work into period detail, to have title cards that sometimes identify the exact date that real events happened, whether it's a fog, a mining disaster, a worker strike, etc., to recreate newspaper headlines, all of these things that give it so much grounding in its ties to reality, the history that actually happened. You do that because it punches up the emotional stakes yeah. for people. And people then to say people are more impacted if they think it actually happened. You know? Many people watch this show with Wikipedia open and they're like double screening it and like Googling, did the prince really summon the, da, 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 you know, et cetera? Did, did so-and-so really get upset about kneeling to so-and-so? And I think that why do people do that? It's not because they just love accuracy, but because they want to know, is this true? Because if this is true, this really kind of hits pretty hard. There is so much about the Windsors that is real, that doesn't require any extra frosting on the cake, that is already just jaw-dropping and would require very minimal reorganization. So then when the show takes some liberties, okay, so maybe they'll like move the date of Billy Graham's visit to the Queen by a year. Or they move Margaret Thatcher's visit to Balmoral by a year um, and imply that she was literally driving down the driveway while Diana was driving up, which I don't think actually happened. Um, I can probably live with that. But then to your point, they take some bigger swings. There aren't that many of them, but they do feel really basically fabricated. Like when Michael Fagan breaks into the Queen's bedroom, which really happened, the whole what did they talk about is invented. And it's used as a lens to talk about sort of social unrest in a Thatcher era sort of austerity um, and uh, sort of budget cuts kind of UK. Yeah. So I, but they I, use like real news footage, like archival news footage from that event to like give it the veneer of authenticity. And that's what bothers me. You know, it's I, it, I yeah. agree that some of those things bother me. And what. The reason I feel mixed is because I actually think the show is more true than it is not. Mm -hmm. So Michael Fagan's, you know, discussion with the Queen may be made up, but like many of the characterizations based on everything that I've read um, of the royals and the books about the royals that I've consumed in the documentaries, I think they're pretty directionally right. And so I don't want to take away from that achievement, which is to bring 
life and texture to an inscrutable family. Yeah. An inscrutable and very powerful family. Um, well, the, the, the uh, sorry, finish through, what you're saying. Through, through the sort of bits that just feel made up. I mean, the other dynamic that kind of complicates it further is, it, as far as I understand, it's basically their policy to not re- respond to this kind of material, right? Like, who's they? They, the the royal family, right? Like, they they don't they're not they're not issuing they're not issuing press releases, being like, here's like what the show got wrong or anything like that. They respond in other ways through like influence and pressure, but. They, 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 they won't go on the record, but exactly. they, they absolutely they, have people working behind the scenes to call and yell at so-and-so or to place a story about so-and-so. Judy Dench recently, before the crown, the queen dies. King is, becomes the king. Um, I'm still having trouble sort of saying that because I don't think of Charles as the king. But almost immediately... Everyone knowing that the crown is coming out in November, Judy Dench comes out and says, "Hey, people should really understand this is fictionalized." Do I think Judy Dench got worked to go play? I absolutely do. Do you think mm-hmm. Judy Dench just came out of nowhere, a person who's not even associated with this production, um, and just decided to yeah, at that moment? Sure. Yes, say that's, something. That's true, but I, I guess I'm saying like they—they they it's their policy to not directly. And on the record, respond to these things. And that does change the dynamic a little bit, as opposed to if this is an organization like, I don't know, the Catholic Church that has no problems coming out and talking about this stuff, you know, like so. uh, I think it's both a feature and a bug. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, I actually think that dynamic of we can't ever be seen to say anything. We can never explain ourselves feeds the problem. It feeds the monster. Yeah, fair enough. But we'll see so, that in season five, I suspect. All right. Well, putting the verisimilitude concerns aside, uh, I do want to acknowledge it, but let's just talk about this as a as a TV show, right? Um, season four. This was what got me into the show. Like I did, I watched season four cold without watching any of the first three seasons. Uh, really loved it. And then and you then went back. Lo- then I later went back and rewatched basically the first three seasons and season four again for the most part. Um, and I think season four is like a great season of television. What, what did you think, Joy, overall season four and, and the, and, and, you know, uh, perhaps in the context of the other seasons. So season one and two, I think are incredible. Um, I'm speaking less about perfect accuracy and more just as a piece of art with something to say, um, that reflects back to us something about. The waning days of official colonialism, I think we're still in colonialism <laughs> effectively, but, you know, the the post-World War II era for the UK and to some extent the world. And um, we get so much interiority with the Queen in those first two seasons that it is quite an abrupt shift to season three when we get a lot less access to how what the queen is thinking at any given time. And of course, there's a recasting going from Claire Foy to Olivia Coleman, and maybe that contributes to it. So in season four, I feel like the show is amazing after season three was a little rough, but it is struggling with the same problem that the Buckingham Palace has in real life, which is that Diana and Diana's story, Diana's charm and glamour are so incandescent that 
every moment that you're not with Diana, you're looking around like, where's Diana? Where's Diana? Is she in the background? <laughs> what is she arguing? Is she, yeah. you know, eating macaroons and keeping them down? And so I feel like you can see this show itself struggling with the same meta problem, which is that the queen is by far not actually the center of this story at the moment in terms of where the viewer's attention wants to be. And I'm really curious how they will address that in the next season too. Yeah. I agree that uh, Diana played by Emma Corrin in season four was amazing. uh, And that we are watching a show go from the queen Elizabeth being the main character to a complete side character in seasons Definitely season four to some extent season three. And then I assume, you know, in season five and six, she will be, you know. I actually uh, have a her, theory her, about yeah, that. Her role my, may my, be more limited. Yeah. But but uh yeah, I think season four was was solid overall. Um you and I have spoken extensively offline about how uh Olivia Coleman doing a great job as uh, playing Queen Elizabeth. And as far as I can tell, like her depiction feels more true to life based on everything we know about the queen. Um, but also in terms of on screen, like a less interesting character uh, than Claire Foy's version of, of Queen Elizabeth, who in my opinion was like, Claire Foy's version was like, this is a person, you know, we might actually know in real life, you know, very down to earth, um, very sort of, emotional and connected to the people around her. Whereas the Olivia Coleman version is much more aloof, I feel, and uh, often appropriately so, you know, to her station. And so uh, making the transition from Claire Foy to Olivia Coleman was a little bit rough. The fact that all the cast member changed in season three did help to ease that transition, you know, because you're like, oh, this is kind of like a whole different, it's a different cast characters kind of in some ways. Um, I am extremely curious what the transition to seasons five and six are going to be, because it's a whole different set of cast members this time around as well. And, and how big of a role the queen's going to play and what that character of the queen is going to be like. So anyway, uh, overall season four, I thought huge success, definitely got someone who is a filthy casual, such as myself uh, into the show and into this intriguing world of the Royal family. Uh, But Shall we talk about some of the specific plot lines in season four and like where we left off well, with the why characters? Why don't we walk through each of the the main characters and just recap for people where we have left them? It is 1990 at the end of season four. So we'll start ninety in season five, I assume, in 1991. Um, and we've talked about the queen to some extent. I will say at least they did a decent job of showing her perspective on the main storylines of the season, which were Diana and Charles, the Margaret Thatcher era. And then I I thought it was really successful that they threw in an episode that was a little like, um, felt a little gimmicky, but in which she like summons each of her children. (laughs) Yeah. So that you could understand like what's her relationship as a mother to each of them. Yeah. I don't suspect in real life that she said to prince philip at the end of all of that it is our children who are lost not margaret thatcher's child in the desert <laughs> well that does point to something that the show does uh often which is it is often extremely clunky with its symbolism right like it's but clunky brilliant the line between the two is often very very fuzzy you know another example would be like six feet under you know on hbo uh, that's a show where every episode began with a death of a person, of a character, 
you know, in the universe. And then somehow the challenge that the family's going through is related in, in some way to that death, right? Like, uh, oh, the person was a, the person was a, like a insect terminator, you know? And then in the family, they're dealing with, insects in spirit you know or whatever like it, it's just like there's some way that they really so similarly like, terrible because you're making it sound horrible i'm just saying like you know uh at the time it was like oh my gosh this is so cool but like looking back on it we might be like oh some of the symbolism is very clunky um that's kind of how i feel about the show too it's at the same time really cool kind of brilliant kind of a smart way of telling the story and also occasionally really really clunky well, it's never subtle. It's never yes. subtle. Agreed. Agreed. It is Agreed. Diana who spots the wounded stag. Yes. Yes. But is is it possible that she herself is the wounded stag? Anyway. Just to be hung up on the wall like a trophy? Yes. Um, so do you feel we've covered Queen Elizabeth? Yeah, and yeah. She's a, yeah. Um, and then, you know, if you, we, maybe we could just go through the family. Yeah. So Prince Philip is Queen Elizabeth's husband. He's not doing a lot in season four. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I will say I thought that between in terms of all the transitions between actors, the transition from um, Matt Smith to this version of Prince Philip was like really quite smooth. Like Tobias Menzies, this, yes. Tobias Menzies. This is like this Great. is the older version of that guy. Like you totally believe it. By far the smoothest transition of all of them, in my opinion. Um, I mean, he is less of a dick in season four than he has been in previous seasons. I think. Um, less sort of obstreperous, you know, le- less uh, snarky, but still does have that uh, that snarkiness. Like the first time he encounters Margaret Thatcher being a great example, right? At the at Balmoral, like he's like, what are you doing? You know, we're not going to have dinner now. You know, like he's very upfront uh, yes. about his feelings. Very so- true to the real Philip from everything I've read. I don't know any of these people IRL. So, you know. It's only based on my reading, but I've read a lot. And uh, I think uh, we might see a little more Philip this season. I mean, it's notable to say that at the end of season four, he does have a conversation with Princess Diana where he kind of like subtly threatens her against leaving the family. Um, I think what that's supposed to represent is that he and Diana wrote a series of letters. Like he tried to intervene in the failure of the marriage and he wrote her a whole bunch of letters, which were alternatingly like supportive and also a little bit like you need to get your shit together girl and i i think this yeah conversation feels very true as well um but he's trying to relate to her also because he feels like he's kind of an outsider in the family too and she's kind of an outsider but uh his attempts seem to have limited success in any case he is queen elizabeth's husband father of prince charles uh, father-in-law of Princess Diana, and we will see how that plays out in season five. All right, there's Prince Charles, who is, as I just mentioned, the son of Prince Philip and uh, the Queen Elizabeth. Prince Charles is a tragic figure. Oh, he who... will go down in history as one-third of the saddest love triangle ever. He is... Uh, he really comes off horribly in season four, in my opinion. Oh, yeah? Like in, se- in season three, Prince Charles is the guy that, the kid who who can't really relate with his dad. His dad's into like manly men. And Prince Charles is not a manly man. He's into plays and acting and philosophy, you know? And so it's like, oh, it's sad that he can't really relate with his dad in any way. 
tragic figure in season three. In season four, he's obviously carrying on an affair with Camilla Parker Bowles, uh, doing so in plain sight of Princess Diana, and basically gaslighting her into gaslighting princess diana into like feeling bad like making her think she in some way was responsible for all the terrible things that are happening for her happening to her it's painful to watch and uh i thought the depiction feel feels very um compelling but just as a character he is trash i think as the kids call it these days you know what i think is interesting and i hope that they get into this a little bit more in season five and six is I think Charles is both better and a little worse than he shows up in The Crown. And this is going to have very real implications. I think that's why, if they are planting Judy Dench or whoever to sort of, or little bits in the newspapers to point out all the inaccuracies in the show, um, to preemptively defend their image, um, I think it is because in real life, Charles is not actually that well known as a person. So some of the things that I think are really impressive about him, you know, they touch on it super lightly. Do you remember there's a scene where they go to Highgrove, his house that he's just bought, and he's sort of explaining, you know, that he wants to transform it into this certain kind of garden. That's all happened. And it's actually, he was like an early champion of organic farming. But we're in that scene through the queen's eyes, and she finds him so boring that she tunes him out and cuts him off. Um, so we don't get to really see the better sides of his, like he genuinely cares about climate change and again was an early adopter of that. He does see himself as kind of a philosoph- philosopher, a person with like ideas. Unfortunately, he's also like brutally spoiled. Like in real life, in real life, if Charles is coming to a house to stay, People arrive days before with his furniture, his bed, his paintings, his liquor, and they set up his whole house effectively wherever he's staying for the weekend. Can you imagine like that level of resources being used to just troop yourself around to different parts of the UK? Like the cost is mind blowing. And he's just, you know, uncomfortable if he's not in his own specific bed so he just takes it with him like you and i are going to hawaii you know can you imagine he would just have his bed shipped to hawaii and that is a level of spoiledness that is shocking even for the royals and so i think he's kind of like a totally out of touch douche but like a bunch of his ideas are actually like decent ones and a bunch of his ideas are bad too yeah yeah I mean, he's grown up in, a, in an unrecognizable environment for most of the rest of us. Um, but yeah, yeah, but what uh, I'm telling you is Anne doesn't have her bed moved. Like, <laughs> that is a Charles <laughs> thing. Fair enough. Fair enough. He also has one of the most memorable lines and scenes in season four, the final episode, where uh, he basically washes his hands of his marriage with Princess Diana. It's a horrifying scene. I think it actually went viral. In uh, on TikTok, like the sound went viral on TikTok recently, where he he says, uh, "I refuse to be blamed anymore for this grotesque misalliance. I wash my hands of it." You know, something along those lines, and it's really, really sad. So, uh, Charles, complex figure. He is both somebody who is an asshole who you uh, don't like, and also I feel sad for him because his parents don't love him very much. It seems based on the show, and know? circularly, the reason his parents don't love him, I mean, partly. It's that he's not as outdoorsy and whatever as they are. But it it's also, he's kind of a whiner, you know? Like, Anne has a real, like, let's just get on with it. Anne got 
kidnapped in 1970. Do you know about this? Mm-mm. Okay, so Princess Anne was the subject of a kidnapping attempt in the 70s, and a guy with a gun like came to her car, and she had like a protection officer or whatever, and she just yelled at them, not bloody likely, and like cartwheeled out of the back of the car and like <laughs> escaped the kidnapping attempt. Like Anne is a baller, and so I just feel like compared to this like incredible daughter they have who's just made of steel, you know, they just can't deal with the moping Eeyore that they have as a son and knowing I think that he's going to inherit the crown makes them feel like God, he's got to toughen up sometime. So let's just mm-hmm. ignore him more, which of course just makes the problem worse. Well, let's talk about Anne. She was played by Aaron Doherty in season four. So uh, good. I thought she's great. Great, great depiction of Anne, like uh, pr- pretty likable, as you said, pretty hearty and doesn't take any BS from people. Very funny. has some of the funnier lines in the show. Um, I don't know that we really left off. Like, as far as I could tell, she was uh, having an affair for a significant portion of season four. Do we know where we left off with, with Anne at the end of yeah, season Yeah, we four? really only get a little bit of screen time with Anne. And it's basically, and I think it's accurate, you know, she's unhappy in her own marriage, like extremely unhappy. Um, she is jealous of the attention that Diana is getting as someone who's a little younger and more glamorous and taking the attention away from the other women in the family um, and rather discontented with her lot in life. Pay attention. I'm sure it's going to come back. <laughs> okay. So that's Anne, who is Charles's sister, right? Charles has other siblings, specifically Andrew. Is that right? Correct. Okay, so Prince Andrew, there's a whole documentary about him on Peacock. He got into trouble because of his associations with with uh, Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, is a buffoonish piece of shit, from what I can tell. So um, again, like where the crown is like overlapping with real life is is odd. Like the Epstein stuff was becoming, it went from known, and the Queen stood by him to completely disastrous over the run of this show. So mm-hmm. by the time season four was being filmed, you know, Andrew was really in disgrace in real life. And so I think they did a good job. We get very little screen time with Andrew in season four. I know, p- please, please let there be more Andrew in season five, because I think it's actually really important to the story they're trying to tell. Um, not just because it's salacious, um, but, you know, Andrew is the... He's not, he's the next oldest son, but he's not next in line to the throne. And Charles says something pretty savage to him about that on his wedding day in the show. And I think this extreme hierarchy, like how steep the hierarchy is of power within the family, it's also in real life, there's an extreme disparate treatment of people in terms of money. And that's going to be a real pressure on Andrew, um, a- along with being born into all of this feeling of entitlement. So you can imagine some of the places that that might go. Um, so that's Prince Andrew, who is Charles's brother. Yes. And Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip's son. Yes. Uh, Edward, is he also a sibling? Edward is the youngest. <laughs> the youngest. I don't even remember him him in the show from season Okay, four, he honest. really basically only shows up a couple times in the background, but his main scene is when the queen summons each of her children. Yeah, that's right. And yeah, she yeah. has lunch with him and he's like 
he's basically a douche, right? So he yeah. has, um, I've used that word twice now, but um, for a positive women's hygiene project, he's a jerk. Let me say that instead. Um, he is the one who is still at school yeah. and says he's being bullied, but he has actually become like gotten a little bit of power within the school and used it to unfairly discipline other people. Yeah. I but, don't know how much Edward we're going to get in the show, to be honest. Uh, yes, he comes off as very terribly entitled and not a good person, but also hurt people hurt people, Joy. Okay. Anyway, that's Edward. Don't don't know if we're going to get much of him. Okay. Um, that's that's mostly like who we're dealing with in terms of the main family. Um, let's talk about Margaret, though. Oh, yeah. Margaret. Um, well, both Margarets. Let's talk about Margarets. Princess Margaret and Margaret Thatcher. So Princess Margaret is Queen Elizabeth's sister. Uh, who is basically unraveling throughout the course of season four, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, she's had a very tragic and sad life, um, starting in season one with her failed attempt at marrying uh, Captain Townsend, which is really, really sad. And then she had another marriage that didn't go well, that was very obviously not going to go well right from the jump. Um, and that went poorly as well. And I think she's in a place of uh, kind of despair, uh, we see her in in season four. Is that accurate to say, Joy? What do you think? Yeah, and as time goes by, decades have gone by now in the show, just because of the nature of more people being born into this family, more people being married into this family. Her position of being sort of theoretically right next to the queen, like if mm-hmm. the queen had died without producing any heirs, I think that Margaret would have been next in the succession way back mm-hmm. then. That was a brief, you know, period of time. But you know, I. Oh, maybe there was never a moment where that was going to be true. But suffice it to say, she was at the very center and she's getting further and further and further to the point that she's basically kicked off this list of working royals potentially during the depiction in the show um, to really kind of reveal how she has had to give her whole life to this identity. But the identity doesn't have room for her anymore. Yeah. Yeah. It's really sad watching her in Mustique. One of the best elements of the show in my opinion is watching uh queen elizabeth's interactions with the various prime ministers that come in and out of england during her reign and season four the focus was on margaret thatcher played by uh, Gillian anderson this depiction was uh polarizing i think uh because many people thought it was terrible and many people thought it was spot on joy where do you fall in this in this uh spectrum i don't I love, love Gillian Anderson. I have loved her since the X-Files. I think she's an incredible actress. I don't understand what's going on in this depiction because it just always felt like camp to me. Very mannered. Very Margaret Thatcher had very pronounced mannerisms in real life, but there's something about it where I just never quite believe that she's doing anything other than pantomiming these. Yes words and i don't think she looks like that i don't think she squints like that i don't think she stands like that um like the it looks like an actress portraying somebody who stands and squints and um lectures and i just um i'm really not sure what to to do with that performance because i think margaret thatcher is incredibly important in real life to the you know evolution of the uk and I don't know. I mean, in parallel with Reagan, you know, brought in this sort of like um, deregulation era. And it's just very sad to me that like it's not well portrayed, number one. And number two, you mentioned like some of the fabrications or things that are just 
made up for story's sake. The thing that actually upset me the most in the fourth season was this scene that I'm pretty sure didn't happen. No one can know for sure, but at the very end, I don't know if you remember in the season finale, Margaret Thatcher is about to lose power because her, um, you know, cabinet ministers are turning against her. And she basically says to her husband, I have one card left to play. I'm going to basically go ask the queen to dissolve parliament, which just to save my ass, which I don't think she ever did. I don't think she would have done. That feels out of character. I don't know what that's supposed to do for me as a viewer, other than make me believe that Margaret Thatcher was truly in it for her own skin, which I don't know. I don't think we kind of had the track laid, if that's what you believe about Margaret Thatcher, more than that she's an ideologue. So um, I felt quite uncomfortable with that. And overall, it was kind of just a miss for me, that whole portrayal. Uh, Yeah, I I think it's a miss in terms of like the characterization, the mannerisms and so on. Really, what I think she needed to do was take it down a notch. Like it's it feels so over the top that it feel it feels unbelievable. It doesn't feel authentic to Gillian Anderson. The best depictions, right, in my opinion, are where the actor can take the actual real life person. Um, and then kind of fuse that person with their personality and like what results is something that feels like a wonderful combination of the two of them, as opposed to someone doing an impression of someone else. And I don't think that, that Anderson really pulled it off this season. Uh, in this plotline's defense, though, I do think that part of the purpose of including Thatcher and all the stories around her is like, uh, how how do we show these two women navigating male-dominated institutions in different ways? And I do think that contrast was a pretty clear in this season. So, um, so I appreciated that part of it. Anyway, I Mark felt Thatcher, like the point was made, but very heavy-handed. Like there wasn't a lot. There wasn't like a double click behind it. You know. Sure. So that's uh, Margaret Thatcher, and there's really only a couple of the characters left from season four that we haven't discussed. Uh, Lady One Diana the- and yes. Camilla Parker Paul. Yeah. Lady Diana of Parker Bowles. Now, Camille Parker Bowles, at the stage of the show that we're still in, uh, is still having an affair with Charles, like an emotional affair with Charles, as far as we can understand. Um, Possibly a real affair as well. It's not really, it's not explicit or anything like that. Um, And uh, at various points has told Charles, like, hey, this isn't, this shouldn't work. Like you should try and make it work with Diana. I cannot compete with Diana and so on. Um, but I, either way, she's still kind of encouraging and participating in this affair throughout the season. Um, you have really strong feelings about Camilla Parker Bowles. I would say, let's put those on hold until we talk about the show itself. But I am curious if you, cause, cause I have a feeling it's going to take a while just to get it all out. But I am curious, like, where you think we stand with Camilla Parker Bowles and if you had any thoughts on her depiction in season four. I think at the time that season four was created, you know, Charles had married Camilla. Um, But it really, y'all, Camilla is the queen consort right now. So she has the same title that the queen mom had. Mm -hmm. She has the same title that Princess Diana would have had had she stayed married to Charles. Mm-hmm. So Camilla's rise is, um, I mean, it is literally the subject of many books already. But I think what 
I think the show has a couple of we are now getting into such intimate territory of recreating individual conversations between people that conversations that could never be witnessed. Camilla doesn't go to the press. Camilla doesn't appear in the press. Camilla is very, very buttoned down. Not buttoned down like in terms of a personality. I actually think she's supposed yeah. to be very like salty and hilarious apparently. But um, she certainly will never air her laundry publicly. So we don't really know what Camilla's take is on it. Everything that comes out of Camilla's mouth about I'm worried about that, like that, that feels so dicey to me, especially the timing of it. What I will say is that the show has left ambiguous whether in in what capacity they're together. But my read of the show, I'm curious if you have the same take, is that in season four, it's implied that he never emotionally left her. And that at some point, there's some amount of physical reconnection as well. There is this moment before he marries Princess Diana where he says, I went to go tell Camilla it was over. You know, and and I don't know that we ever really understand whether that was a full on lie or not. Like, did he ever intend to tell her that it was over? You know, so I don't think I just don't think the show is very clear on the subject. Yeah. And I think sort of like Phillips infidelity, they're leaving it kind of it's possible either way. Yeah. You can read it. You can believe what you want. I I do feel like, though, they are doing. I understand the show needs to make choices, but they're essentially making this about the show posits that Charles and Camilla are deeply in love, were kept apart by convention or whatever, but they would have gotten married otherwise, probably. And that unfortunately, because they couldn't get married, um, he had to marry Diana, which was partly an arrangement and more, you know, to produce an heir and to have convenience and whatever. That marriage was probably doomed. And maybe having Cam- him, the fact that he couldn't let Camilla go um, as his one true love killed the marriage with Diana. And, you know, fast forward, they get he and Camilla get married. And, you know, here we are today. Is, is that how you see season four? Like the story? Um, yeah. Yeah, I thought I thought you were literally describing season four just now. <laughs> well, yeah. So that's yeah. that's my read of it. But I also know in reality there is a lot. Like this context is completely missing. That there's a long tradition of royal mistresses, and it's not considered out of like it's even though the king or the sovereign is supposed to be the head of the Church of England and so morally upstanding, it's actually just understood that there will be mistresses and the mistresses are women of the aristocracy, many of whom are married. And so, for instance, um, everyone, it seems like, in this sort of larger circuit of the nobility and you know house parties in the country is just like hooking up left and right, often with married people, you know, um, in 1980, there's this thing I just like cannot get out of my head. In 1980, so this is before, one year before Charles and Diana get married. Charles goes to a party, uh, a polo ball, where Andrew Parker Bowles is there and Camilla is there and he dances with Camilla all night. Andrew Parker Bowles and Camilla are married. He dances with Camilla all night and they literally make out on the dance floor in front of everyone. And Andrew Parker Bowles turns to someone and says, basically, uh, the king certainly seems to like my wife. 
There's no like hide. No one's even trying to hide it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like I think the year before that, Charles took Camilla as the official escort for him on a foreign trip to Zimbabwe. So it just like, did Diana really not know that this was very, very, very likely just kind of an arrangement in which there would be a multiple rotating set of mistresses. Maybe she didn't know how devoted Charles would be to Camilla. Mm -hmm. But it, yeah, I mean, the show depicts Diana as very much like a, a babe in the woods, blushing flower who's like, I can't believe anything like this could possibly happen and like extremely heartbroken by it. Right. Yeah, I'm sure she was heartbroken in real life. But um, the extent to which some of these facts were known, you know, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that was known in the royal family that wasn't known to Diana, as this season makes clear. So I don't know. I, it feels believable that she wouldn't wouldn't have caught on to it. But anyway, or I, I, I think, she wouldn't I have been should... okay with it. I think that's yeah. also yes. fair. But I just um, on the one hand, I actually don't like the sort of Charles and Camilla are the one true loves of each other's lives, you know, storyline, because I, I don't know if I totally, mm, you know. I have mixed feelings there, but I also feel like it's the, the show really underdevelops Diana. And like, that's, you know, something I'd really like to talk about, actually. Well, so let's talk about that, because what I was going to say is one thing I think the show does a really good job of is uh, depicting this difference between Camilla Parker Bowles and Diana. Like they are really different personalities. They look very different. They dress very different. And you can understand why someone would be drawn to one of them and not the other. Wait, which um, one? I, I'm just saying, I, I'm just saying in general, you can understand why somebody would be would like one. It's not like two people who are like identical. And it's like, why would you okay. like one and not the other? It's Got like it. these people are really, really different. Um, so let's talk a little bit about Emma Corrin and their depiction of Princess Diana. Emma Corrin, I believe, uses they, them pronouns. And... I thought this was a really great depiction, uh, largely because uh, even though there were at times I felt Emma Corrin was doing an impression of Princess Diana with like the way that uh, they tilt their head or, you know, they're kind of some of Princess Diana's mannerisms. Um, what is undeniable to me is that Princess Diana as a character, she was the beating heart of this season. She is like an the audience surrogate. She's the person that everyone loved just before they even started watching the show. Everyone like she's beloved. Princess Diana was a beloved figure. Um, and when she is react, when Princess Diana is reacting to all the stuff that's happening in the royal family, we as the audience agree with her because it's like a lot of this stuff is mental, as they would say in, in the UK. You know, it just doesn't make any sense. And so I thought Emma Corrin did a, a wonderful job. You just said you thought the Princess Diana character was uh, not very well fleshed out. What did you mean by that? I mean, all the characterization that's there does feel it, just like what we were saying. Gillian Anderson's depiction of Margaret Thatcher maybe feels like a miss. Emma Corrin's portrayal of Diana feels like right right there in terms of like it's a nod to how Diana moved and spoke and looked, but it is her own inhabiting of the character and it feels extremely believable. So everything that was done, I think is good, but I think there were things that were missed. And, you know, one of the interesting things about this show is they don't necessarily tell important stories in a linear way. We have so much discussion of the abdication all through season one. It really kicks off um, the abdication of Edward the eighth. Um, so that, 
Elizabeth's father, um, George, became king. I was really shocked they never told that story of the abdication more directly. And then it, they end up telling it in a flashback, I think, in season two. So maybe we're going to get some of this yeah. later. But why is Diana so... I don't want to use the word fragile because I think that sounds really judgmental. But like, why is she so broken by things so quickly? Um, or why does she, I mean, rather famously have um, intense, you know, feelings about things like she comes from a broken family herself. And that's not really gotten into her family while like her father's an earl um, and has a big title had just a truly appalling, appalling um, set of circumstances that she grew up in. And then um, another thing I think they don't touch on is like the huge age difference. They mention it, but Josh Charles, Josh, uh, sorry, that's not his last name. Is it Josh who plays um, Prince Charles? Josh um, O'Connor? Yeah, Josh O'Connor. Um, and Emma Corrin don't look so different in age that you really get that she was a teenager when they met, and he was a really grown man, very experienced, making out with Camilla Parker Bowles all over Gloucestershire. Yeah. In, in real life, Josh O'Connor and Emma Corrin are five years difference, basically. And so um, the real age difference is like 11 years. And you know, the thing that I was thinking about, because I was watching the All Too Well <laughs> um, mini film that Taylor Swift made, is you know Taylor Swift has basically gone back and retold the story through that song of her and Jake Gyllenhaal and how there was probably an appalling age difference between them. And the age difference between Charles and Diane is actually greater. And so I just feel like if you're uncomfortable watching Sadie Sink, you know, in the All Too Well short film, picture that like that person grows up to be a princess, except like one year later and has like the eyes of the world on them at every moment and just the crushing amount of fame. So um, those are things that I think were skipped. Um, I actually, there's a third thing that is really important, which is that Diana's really savvy. So she is portrayed in this era, which is the 80s in the show, as being just this babe in the woods, wandering, bewildered, not having anything explained to her. But she is really, really, really good um, and a super quick study at managing the press and managing her image very proactively in ways to like send signals when she's unhappy. Mm -hmm. um, and so she, given that she's at that point, probably the most photographed woman in the world, um, is really like, that. that's a power that she has. Um, yeah. And it's there partly because she hones it. She comes off as quite uh, hapless and helpless in season four. Uh, I expect that will change in season five, but we'll see. Um, so, Well, I hope so, because the things that happen don't come out of nowhere. Yeah. Okay, anything else about the... So that's kind of where we left off all the characters in season four. That's like most of the main players. Um, but at the end of season four, specifically for Diane and Charles, the marriage is going terribly. Uh, and that, that's like the most important thing to recount is that it, it's like disintegrating very rapidly. And so we'll see where we pick up with the marriage. Um, a lot of the advertising around season five has been, uh, and I will reveal what is in the trailers, but a lot of the advertising has been around how the marriage continues to disintegrate to the to the breaking point, and so um, that's the most important thing about like how season four will lead into season five, probably. 
when it comes to season five, I you know I don't want to try to avoid any spoilers or anything like that. But I guess um, is there anything that you are particularly looking forward to, or anything you want to see depicted? Again, avoiding spoilers as much as possible. Well, I think the long-term question for this show is like, can the monarchy survive? Can it actually reform itself? That's a question that's still true today in 2022, um, or it still feels relevant. Um, And I think that what we are going to see is all of these echoes in the 90s of things that have been brought up in the show previously, like the rise of celebrity culture, you see how Margaret gets hounded by the paparazzi when she's like particularly young and glamorous um, and single. And particularly, I would say the paparazzi had not like existed in her age, but like the photographer and press attention on women um, and (laughs) the impossible box that that puts the women in as subjects of the attention. Um, The, I mentioned already sort of how extremely steep the hierarchy is within the monarchy itself and how power and resources are concentrated. It means that people get left out in the cold if they're at the edges of it and they can be very vulnerable and unprotected. Um, Well, not just in the family too. I mean, I think that one of the most striking things about the crown is you see basically like a fleet of people being necessary to maintain the monarchy. Uh, and that clashes when you have people in the UK that are starving. You know, it's like in in centuries past, it might have been just okay. This is how we do things. But like, I like Prince uh, or, or sorry, King Charles, I guess now has had to like go out on record and say like, hey, the monarchy costs like the the British people like this X hundred millions of dollars, right? And like, here's how we expect to like save money. Here's how we expect to make it up. Like, it it has gone from hey, we just are gonna. These people are aspirations that we will just accept to be in this role to now they really feel like they need to explicitly and financially defend their existence. Um, And I expect that that dynamic will probably play more of a role in season five and six as well. So, Um, yeah, I think, I mean, Charles has always wanted to have a slimmed down monarchy. Um, And what that means is you're going to have to turn to people and say, you're my relative. Get off the dole, you know, just get some form of job. Get a job, sir. Get and a job. And what kind of jobs do you think these people are going to do? <laughs> uh, tour guide to the castle they live in? You know, like... Yeah, uh, well, he is converting more and more of, like, the royal estates into... You know, like, you can visit Windsor Castle, not every bit of it. You know, maybe... Yeah, yeah. yeah maybe they can be involved in that. Um, yeah. I think um, some other stuff we're going to see... In season five, I would expect um, it's definitely like continued repercussions of the abdication there. Like, you know, the family is just so abhorrent toward divorce that they wouldn't let Margaret marry group captain Peter Townsend, et cetera, et cetera. And then Margaret gets the first royal divorce since Henry VIII, which is like who created the Church of England because of that whole divorce question. But it's about to be like divorce-o-rama. I don't feel like that's like a spoiler um, from real life. <laughs> And like what that will do to the queen in her own like view as and and, and divorce is like so close to the crown. Um, And, you know, how their way of dealing with the pressures of being royalty is to basically say, never complain, never explain. That's like their motto. 
and like how insufficient that's going to start to feel and how damaging and, and even um, abusive that might be. I mean, Michael Hobbs, uh, the podcaster, once described being born into the royal family as a human rights abuse. Human rights violation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you can but- see sort of how that could be not through people's bad intentions, but through their like really maladjusted coping. I think one of the things I appreciate about the crown is it has a fun it it gestures towards a fundamental truth, which is that some people can be incompatible. And I think that, you know, basically it's like, hey, Prince Charles, like you have this beautiful woman in your life. You have everything you could ever ask for, all the money and the wealth and the gardens and all that shit. Uh, and he can't make it work. And as far as we can tell, his love for Camilla Parker Bowles is real. Like they are still together to this day. And there's this this idea of like, hey, um, we as an institution, the crown, and probably as a society, should stop trying to jam these people together, these abstract ideas, a.k.a. people together in these pairings that we think are best um, because it will end catastrophically. Like that, that, that is the thesis of the show from the last four seasons, as far as I can tell. Um, so I do think there's something a little romantic about that. In the sense that it's like, you know, there's some people who should do. <laughs> you fell for the one true love storyline. This is mm-hmm. why it's so dangerous. Okay, we can come back to this after mm-hmm. we see season five. The other thing I wanted to mention is I think the. I don't know if you remember this, but Princess Diana is not just a celebrity, but she becomes like a celebrity philanthropist. Mm hmm where she's associated with all of these causes and always like raising money and going to different places Mm -hmm. around the world. And that predates Bono, Angelina Jolie, like folks who, this is part of a movement that we see about celebrity and philanthropy going hand in hand that we still have until now. And it precedes the rise of Us Weekly as magazine, you know, like we had people, but we didn't have this whole like phalanx of just celebrity um, coverage And now, of course, a lot of that has shifted to like social media, but it's starting to feel like we're really sowing the seeds for what we see today that continues to shape our lives. Do you know that this will be in season five or are you just kind of hoping that this is what you'll see? I don't see how you can avoid it Mm -hmm. because this is what I I don't know what it is going to be, but I I, I think it's got to be. I mean, I think the show is pretty skillful at avoid. It's pretty skillful at picking and choosing what it wants to talk about. So I, I don't know that. I, I basically wouldn't expect any of the things that we know from real life, Diana, and what happened with the story. Like, I wouldn't take for granted that any of it would show up in the show. Personally, yeah, no. But look, I'm like Babe Ruth. I'm like picking my yeah. shot, and I'm saying yeah, yeah, that's sure, where sure. I'm going to hit a homer. Like my other thing that I and this is got to be a no brainer. I hope. I hope is that they're going to get into the role of the British press, which is not like the press in any other part of the world. Rupert Murdoch, you know, becomes this extremely powerful force. Um, it is partly off of the back of Royals coverage and how the palace and Diana's camp and everybody works the press, how the press show up and are complicit in and benefiting from and damaged by all of this. I mean, that uh, there is an extremely famous interview that she gives that I won't, I mean, it doesn't, I don't know if it's a spoiler, but 
suffice it to say that the war within the BBC over how this came to be and the fallout of that interview itself could be two episodes of yeah. really interesting real life stuff. And so the Martin Bashir interview is that is that what yes, you're talking about? Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Piers Morgan comes out of this era. So in '94, um, he becomes the editor of a national paper, and he's appointed by Rupert Murdoch. This is how we thanks. This is how we have Piers Morgan to deal with to this day. Is you know. Um, <laughs> I, I just I think that there is a um, degree to which, you know, often the crown will shift focus for the start of an episode. You're following a, someone delivering milk into someone's house and you don't know whose house that is. You're following someone at the dentist's office. It's the milkman that Margaret's having an affair with, you know, or, or whatever. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I have to believe we are going to get to know the journalists slash media figures as individual people in order to tell this story properly. Mm -hmm. I think Joy is really projecting a lot. I, I mean, Joy, you, you say all this stuff, but like we know for a fact, based on reports, that there is an apparently fictional plotline in which Prince Charles tries to do a coup on Queen Elizabeth. So it's like, I just don't trust that anything meaningful is going to be in this, you know, like it could, it could be, it could be, but it's like, there's so much ground to cover that I just don't think anything, you, we can't assume anything's going to be in season five, but um, but I know you know what happens in season, like the main events, and so, uh, and well, you've been really, you've hmm, been really. If they sad don't about go it. to the media part, you know, I don't, I don't know how you. I, yeah. I, I, I guess you have low expectations, but I feel like the show <laughs> has overall, to mm -hmm. like the point I made earlier, been accurate, if not, or has been true, if not accurate, more than yeah. it hasn't been, and so. Yeah, that Tony Blair, um, like, or not Tony Blair, John Major, let's do a coup thing sounds really bad. And I, I really hope that they, that's misrepresented in the press. But <laughs> yeah, um, I will knows, say, who knows what wild directions the show's going to shoot off in is kind of what I'm saying, you know? And, you know, but, to your point, can I do a little digression about Peter Morgan? Sure. So, one of the amazing things about, <laughs> this whole show is like it is aiming the camera at these people and saying, look at the mess. Um, but actually, if you were to just move the camera a little bit to one side or a little bit to the other side, you would have so much mess to look at. For instance, um, Peter Morgan, who has created the show, so you could make a meta show about the show, was dating Jillian Anderson while she was playing Margaret Thatcher. And they were living together. But then he moved out because he started dating Jemima Khan. Jemima Khan is Princess Diana's real friend from real life who has been a consultant to the show. Mm -hmm. So while he's she's consulting to the show, she also starts dating Peter Morgan. Okay. Well, then they break up. And it's unclear why or how, but she also quits the show. And on her way out, she sends this statement that's like, the show is so disrespectful to the memory of Princess Diana. So she's just burning down her ex's house. Yes. His $100 million a year house. And I don't know if maybe she's got a point. Maybe the show is really disrespectful to Princess Diana. Maybe she's just unhappy. Maybe, I don't know. Jemima Khan, in real life, was married to Imran Khan, who just today was the was shot three times like he's a former Pakistani prime minister mm -hmm. as we're so, recording this yeah yeah so I just he he's expected to be 
to su- it was in the leg, you know, so it's expected to survive. But like the amount to which the show intersects with real life feels very uncomfortable to me. Mm-hmm. And I think the show could, if popular enough, shape people's opinion about the monarchy enough to actually damage the actual monarchy. It's interesting you say that because I would have thought it would have already done that based off of season four alone. And uh, according to some of my British friends, that is not the impact at all of the show. You know, that it it has, in fact, uh, made these characters who have been responsible for pretty terrible things uh, more relatable, more human and um, and has largely been neutral to positive for people's perception of the monarchy so far is my understanding. In the UK, at least. So, Well, we are getting to like some truly ugly bits, but yeah. I do think people in the UK know these ugly bits very well because they had 15 newspapers a day that were offering them different angles on the same story. So um, this will definitely be many of the events of The Crown so far. We're not in anyone's like real lived memory, but uh, who's still with us. But we're starting to get to the point where it is. Oh, so I know there are some very salacious people we're going to meet. We don't have to get into that. Um, but I, I did want to share with you a couple of things that were not in season four at all. So before okay. we say farewell completely to season four and the 80s. The first is, I mentioned to you that we didn't get a lot of time with Prince Edward. So that's the youngest. Yes. The youngest of Philip and Elizabeth's sons or uh, children. Both. Yeah. Yes, correct. Edward, every Every child in this family, other than Anne, is Anne is the one who should have been the ruler. Anne is clearly mm-hmm. the one that should have been in charge. Mm-hmm. Edward goes off and like has sort of like a weird failed documentary career. Um, like he drops out of the military. He his dad wants him to be an accountant, and he's like, "That is so unglamorous. I'm not going to do that." So in the late '80s, he stages. <laughs> I was so sad they didn't show this. He creates this event on television um, where he gets the royals to participate, which is called It's a Royal Knockout. And it is a medieval-themed tournament, like a reality show, where they perform, like they are pitted against each other in four teams. And like Princess Charles, uh, Prince uh, Charles and Diana like refused to participate. The queen refused to participate. Um but he got Fergie to participate and um, Anne is in there. And this thing still exists. Like you can get it on videotape where they like dress up as vegetables and like throw hams at each other. And Michael Palin is there and John Travolta and Meatloaf and like a real range. I think um, Charles Brolin is there. You know, like it's really um, uh undignified and Fergie in particular comes off looking really 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 unroyal so even though it's Edward's fault I think a lot of it blew back onto Fergie because she is out there competing (laughs) in her hearty you know smiling way um actually probably doing a good job in terms of the competition but looking um so mortifying um that it is considered actually possibly the low point of the entire royals sort of public persona of the entire monarchy in the history of mankind potentially yeah um another thing that they didn't get to is so there are a lot of conspiracy theories about diana i think they are they have done 
in season four, there are a couple of times where they hint um, at, I think they've laid the track that in season five, they could at least acknowledge that these conspiracy theories exist. And that is basically that um, in trying to control Diana, she was surveilled and um, by whom, you know, could be like, not just um, on the royal side, it could be on the British government side. Um, And that maybe the most salacious of these conspiracy theories is that she was killed. Um, And so, and that is something that is being spread by someone very prominent and close to um, the whole situation. So um, what wasn't mentioned is that, you know, they, they show that she's having an affair with James Hewitt, which is true. But prior to that, she had another affair with someone who died really suddenly in the 80s. And so uh, in a motorcycle accident, and she said that she thought he was killed because of her. And so I I think there is a paranoia, at least, that is suffusing her world that we Mm -hmm. haven't quite seen yet. Um, But I, you know, it's, it's really, really depressing. You can imagine how isolated she felt already. And then to start to believe these kinds of things is, um, I mean, the the unraveling, I think, is very, very real. Well, from this point forward, my guess is it's going to be smooth sailing for Princess Diana. So hopefully. (laughs) Every time you and I watch The Crown, like halfway through the episode, you turn to me and you're like, well, I guess it was smooth sailing from there on out for the royals. (laughs) They'll go through some horrifying ordeal, you know, and it's like one of the worst things you can imagine someone going through. And then I'll just say... But I guess it was smooth sailing from that point forward, which is a line from The Simpsons, by the way. Um, anyway, well, that is our recap and look back at season four of The Crown. And hopefully you found that enjoyable and intriguing and made you want to watch season five of The Crown, which is airing on Netflix starting November 9th. Uh, and we will be covering it in some capacity here on Decoding TV. So you can find more episodes of the show at podcast.decodingtv.com. Email us at decodingtv at gmail.com. Find us on YouTube, TikTok, and Twitter at decodingtv. Uh, and I will have more to say soon about how we're going to be covering it, but you know that we will be covering it. So if you watch the show, you will hear at least one more episode of us talking about the show. But Joy, I want to say thank you so much for all your research and knowledge and insight that you brought to this conversation and looking forward to watching season five of The Crown with you. Me too. And I really look forward to hearing from people in the Commonwealth about their different perspectives. Indeed. Goodbye. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.